Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. Okay, so next question. I've been sober 13 months since I joined SA. That's fantastic. I have done a full disclosure and passed a polygraph, made a meeting, and um, have had a phone call 365 days plus in a row. I am committed to change, but all of which has only seemed to stop any chance at reconciliation. Overall, what is the percentage chances that couples have make a reconciliation across the nation? Less than 25% question mark. Um, so I don't know where the percentage came from. Um, but what I would say is it's different. It's not different for every couple, but it's, it's different depending on the couple's stage of life. For example, that's one difference. There are others. So if I'm a young couple and I've been together two or three years and this person did all did, you know, the stuff we do, I might decide that I, you know, I could get out of this. Like I don't have to be with this person for 20 years and I don't want to deal with their problem. And then, you know, no matter how good a job you do in recovery, they will often say, this isn't what I want to do. Um, Older couples tend to have a history, family, kids, friendships, church, whatever it is, whatever, whoever you are, whatever you, but they have a history and they don't necessarily want to give up and we're older. So older folks don't necessarily want to give up their stability. So in the beginning, it's, uh, it's, uh, it becomes less important. Uh, getting hurt becomes less important than having a stable life when you get older. Um, t- depends on the degree to which you're being hurt. In my work, um, if you count all the couples that I've seen and that we've worked with, I would say 80%, eight, 80% stay together. Um, if they one or both was motivated enough to go to treatment, to get to therapy, to do this hard work, and they are committed to let's see what happens over a period of time. If they're open in that way, I think a good 80% stay together. And the others, and this has always been my experience. So take 25 years of a therapist's experience. And they even taught this in school when I was really, really young. Um, Nine times out of a 10, when a couple, nine times out of 10, when a couple's come to us, therapists talking about breaking up, one of them has already decided. Mm. And um, oftentimes us therapists are in a situation where we're not always helping the couple work it out. We're, we're often helping one partner finally come clean that they don't want to be in the relationship, but they want the support and they want to see their partner supported. And so they, they need to go to therapy to talk about it. So what I'm saying to you is that most of the relationships that I see break up were flawed to begin with, or had such meaningful problems that this issue pushed them over the edge. Um, I don't think most couples break up over infidelity and infidelity is a form of illness. It hurts like hell, but it's still in some level, you don't necessarily want to leave a troubled partner. So anyway, I, I think many fewer partners break up. And I think the ones that do those relationships were not headed in the right way anyway. Um, but Tammy might have a completely different notion. No, I actually, in a different uh, way. yeah, no, I really, um, uh, I, I really validate, you know, everything in my experience with what you said, one of the things, I mean, it's 13 months, which is fantastic for you, but again, it's still in that period of time for spouses and partners 
what I'm curious about is you're doing all of these things, what support, and it's not that your spouse needs therapy because there's something wrong, but what is your partner doing to get support from other partners and to heal? You know, I mean, there's trauma, there's all of this stuff and, and just getting support and help, you know, to heal that, like Dr. Rob was saying, you know, grieving the loss of the relationship that they thought they had of the person they thought you were all of those things, you know, take time to heal. So there could be a lag, you know, but that, but your partner may be healing and it just may be less obvious because you're in a different place and you're going, man, I'm doing all this stuff and I'm feeling so much better. So it just may look different, but working with a qualified professional, I, you know, at this point, it seems like working with someone to help the two of you, you know, look at this and what you're hoping for in the relationship, you know, or not hoping for in the relationship, you know, would be worthwhile. So. I want to jump back on that question, Tammy, because you can read this differently, and I want to because I think it'll be useful. I am committed to change, but all of this, meaning the stuff, all the meetings and the polygraph and the 365, I'm committed to change, but all of that work I've done seems to stop any chance of reconciliation. So number one, what I read in this is I did all this for her. And mm-hmm. I did, or at least now that I've done all of this, how come she's not, you know, coming back? And, and I don't think that you, I would, I think you're beginning to find out why you did all this work and it isn't to save your marriage. It's hopefully to take care of yourself and look at yourself and be a better person, whether this worked out or not. I think one of the things we talk about is seeking integrity. And by the way, I think there's seven guys in treatment, but every, every one of them who's in a relationship with a marital partner, male or female, comes in trying to save their relationship. I mean, like I said, people don't come in for the glory of being a better person. And most often people come in to save their relationships, but then they find out, and that's part of our work, I hope, that they're never going to be happy with themselves or their relationships if they don't do this for themselves. And we have a saying, whatever you put in front of your recovery, you will lose, which means if you make your spouse and working it out with them, the primary reason you're doing this, you're going to lose the spouse and you're going to probably lose your sobriety. So maybe, maybe part of the reason why your hard work seems to stop chances of reconciliation is the reason you're doing it. Maybe your spouse feels like, oh, another thing he's telling me about that he did. In other words, if she feels like you're trying to prove your way back into the relationship and rather than having some expectation that she's going to meet your, you know, in other words, I would wonder why you're doing all this and what her feeling is about what you're doing before I would question uh, whether you can reconcile or not. Because if I were her and I felt like you were doing this all to get me back, I wouldn't be very happy. So the next question ties right into this. I am the sex addict and I've been in recovery five months. When I share with my husband, Thanos, he often asks, what are you going to do about it? My question is, what are some consistent behaviors which my spouse is hoping to see other than just doing my recovery work? How will I know my actions are on the right track? I understand talk is cheap. So I have to ask, and I I know I feel like an idiot, but what is Thanos? I, I can't remember, but it's a specific check. I've heard it before and I can't remember what, but each letter stands for, I mean, my feelings, attitude. I don't remember what it stands for. If you want to type that in the chat real quick, because I, I can't remember what it is. So I mean, I can um, answer some, the second part, but yes. um, so um, to be honest, I wrote a book about this and I, it's called Out of the Doghouse, a relationship saving guide for men caught cheating. 
Tammy, if I know her, will probably put it in the chat. I will. And um, I wrote this book because most men I work with have no idea the degree of harm that they've caused in cheating and therefore in whatever the way they did it. And then they have no idea how to fix the problem because they don't understand the nature of the problem or how big it is. So um, this is a book I wrote out of the doghouse so that men who were cheating, sex addict or not, could understand how to begin to grow uh, a clue <laughs> about what your partners need in order for you to heal and reconcile, for them to feel what you're talking about is empathy, that you really, really understand what they've been through and you really care. And yes, talk is cheap, but it does matter how you approach someone, you know, and how you, whether you're deferential or demanding, whether you're assertive, it's not just about promises. Like I promise you I'm doing better. Not, not that kind of talk is cheap, but how do you hear them speaking to you? Like if a spouse gets angry, are you defensive or do you listen? Do you fight for your point of view? Or do you understand that? Of course they feel this way. I've hurt them. So it's not just in, um, what they see you do. It's also in how you approach their pain. Um, and I think, and that's why I wrote that. I don't know if Tammy, you want to add to this question. Well, so Thanos is feelings, affirmation, needs, ownership, and struggles. And I had heard that before. I, I've not used that one. So, um, but I had heard that in my wandering. So, so that's, a, so uh, what, they use that as a prompt for a check-in like, yeah. Thank you. Any other, any thoughts about the actual uh, I always say actions, not just words. So I, you know, when your spouse is going, what are you going to do about it? It's like, what am I going to do about, you know, things? So I think that's. Well, and you might say to your spouse, what would make you feel more comfortable? What would you, what would you like to see me do? You know, that might help. Okay. Tell me what we Okay. Got. Next one. I am a sex addict and D-Day was five months ago. We are due to go on a two week vacation in the Dominican Republic in early November. Any advice for an essay going on a beach vacation to make my wife feel safe and to minimize triggers? Okay. So Tammy, I want to ask you as someone who speaks to the spouses all the time, they're often female. And as a woman yourself, uh, do you have any thoughts or feelings about this five months ago? Yeah, I know. I was like, I would make sure I have a whole plan for recovery things every single day. I'd be checking in and having a meeting. I'd probably be calling my sponsor. Like we talk about bookends. I'd probably be calling my sponsor before I go to the beach. And after I go to the beach, just to remember what my, you know, what my accountability is. I, I would be doing it. Like if you want it to be a good vacation, what what do you need to do? I'd have a conversation with your spouse. What, what's going to help you feel safe, you know, while we're on the beach, what are you looking for from me? And, and I think that that might be a start, but you know, I mean, the reality is there's human beings everywhere. So anything can be a trigger. So, so having the conversation with your wife is a good choice. Um, yeah, I mean, all of that, you're right. I mean, you took my my good suggestion away because <laughs> I was going to say talk to her or talk to him, a wife. So talk to her. First of all, she will respect the fact that you have enough concern to want to ask her. And also addicts, I think we just, oh, here's a problem. Let me figure out what to do. Uh, this is, a, she's going to be experiencing this. Ask her, like Tammy said, what will make her more comfortable? Um, I also would be curious if she said, you know, going to hike in the mountains would make me feel more comfortable than being on the beach with a bunch of women in bikinis. Are you willing to say, I'll trade those tickets in or I'll lose the money? 
You know, um, I'm not saying this for you, but for anybody, it's kind of like, how far are you willing to go to help your spouse feel more trusting? And if, and with an with a question like that, after five months, my answer would be, how quickly can I get rid of these tickets? Because I appreciate, by the way, that your goal is you want your spouse to feel more safe. Let me just tell you this, though. After five months, nothing you can do is going to make her feel mm -hmm. safe. She is going to see an attractive woman getting off the elevator, and she's going to absolutely believe that that's who you're staring at. And that's anytime someone comes over to you to ask a question, if they're a woman or they're attractive, when you go have a massage, she's going to check to see if it's a man or a woman. I mean, she is not going to feel safe with D-Day five months ago, no matter what you do, because that is not a set of circumstances where any spouse would probably feel safe. But you can minimize the damage, as Tammy said, by having some real communication about how to handle it and what would make her most comfortable uh, now and when, she, when you're there. And I, I want to go back to, and two weeks of vacation isn't a two week of vacation from your recovery plan. I mean, every day, but this is a journey. We get to do this wherever we are. Our recovery goes wherever we are. So you can go to, I bet Dominican Republic has meetings. We have meetings online. There, there are so much recovery work and the more good stuff I'm putting in, the less I'm likely to be, you know, causing problems in my world. So. I also like the Tammy one of the, the make my wife feel safe. You can't do anything to make your wife feel safe. She has to find her own safety. You can do what's best for your recovery and your, I mean, this is where that line is. You can do the best for your recovery and your healing. And it may not make her feel safe because we knew her from the other one, 365 days of everything didn't make her feel safe, but you shouldn't be sitting back and saying, Hmm. So what, when is the moment at which she's going to feel safe? Um, that's, it happens if it happens and you didn't make it happen. You were taking care of yourself. And over time, he or she started to feel safe. My essay partner acted out to many photos of many of my friends, but I only know of a few names through very painful scattered disclosures. I am triggered by my own friends, even though they did nothing wrong. All I want is a disclosure, but my partner says the CSAT refuses to let him do so without me taking care of my addiction, which I have already uh, spoken with my CSAT and even my mother about. He uses it often as a weapon against me, and it is very painful. How do I start to not be triggered by my close friends and have him meet me in the middle by giving me the truth? Well, that is a bunch of questions. In yeah. Order, I have to say. Yeah. It is, it is. So, and, and I'm sorry that your friends, I, I feel for your, I mean, like they don't even know probably, but you know, they're victims of his, uh, you know, of his addiction. So, um, but I, I guess one of the things I'm looking at is my C, my partner says his CSAT refuses. So the first thing I read there is if it's coming from his lips only and not directly from the CSAT, I would want it varied verified, validated with the CSAT. I would want to talk to the CSAT myself. So wait a minute, Tam, I want to clarify that. Are you saying that sometimes addicts come back from therapy and they lie about what went on in therapy in order to get what they want? I'm saying that and that sometimes addicts go to their therapists and lie to them for, for years. So, so yes, true. unfortunately, addicts lie. So, so I would not trust it unless I heard it directly from the therapist myself. So I can't speak to, I'd rather not speak to the taking care of my addiction that I'm working on. And because I don't think that's something we can really speak to. And um, uh, I don't understand the using it as a weapon again, because I don't, I don't know enough about that, but I, I do want to say that 
um, I have people I work with who were having sex with their, their partners, friends and best friends. And, um, you know, the amount of violation that that spouse feels I can only begin to imagine because it's not just hurting your relationship with your partner. It's making your whole world unsafe. I think this woman truly does not know whether she can talk to someone uh, she works with or someone who's a neighbor or someone to the grocery store without wondering if her husband slept with them. And what a horrible situation to be, to not be able to turn around, see an attractive woman and truly think that he actually slept with them or had sex with them, I should say. So um, this is a, a, an incredible violation. And I, I have to say, I don't fully trust him. Uh, that's what came up for Tammy was mistrust. And what I came up for me is, are you sure he just did it with the photos? Because I really wonder, uh, I really wonder about that. Um, you know, you said um, my friends did nothing uh, wrong. I hope not, but people do all kinds of things and uh, don't talk about it. And so, you know, people who are, uh, anyway, I just have some concerns about the reality there and, why can't you have disclosure? Why does he or the therapist keep making excuses? Is there something they don't want you to know? Um, like something like this. Um, yeah. So or I just, that he isn't, he hasn't stopped the behavior. I mean, you, you know, having a disclosure when he hasn't stopped looking at photos or whatever he's doing, you're just going to get another disclosure. So if he's not ready to be truthful and have a good, clean, you know, disclosure, document prepared with a qualified CSAT, you know, then you just get an, you know, you want to know the truth, but will you really get the truth? I guess that's my, like, you, you probably at this point won't get the real truth. So. And Tammy, I don't know whether you would, in fact, based on what you just said about truth, I wonder if this isn't a couple that really needs some couples therapy. There's, there's boundary issues, there's communication issues, there's addiction and sobriety issues for both partners. Um, it, this is a situation where I think having some neutral to guide both of you together, because this is a complex situation. And I, I don't think either one of you be just being in therapy would help. I think you need someone who's in the room with both of you, because there's just so much here. Um, at least it couldn't hurt if you got the right person. Well, or sometimes you both have CSAT therapists. So perhaps having the, your two therapists with the two of you doing a conjoint session to kind of clear the air and get things figured out can be helpful too. So there are, I would talk to your therapist and see, you know, what they recommend. They may work with a couple's therapist that knows both of them and, you know, with proper releases, it, you know, that could be helpful. So, okay. Next question. Mm -hmm. Hi, Dr. Robin Tammy. I'm a betrayed partner of a sex and porn addict and cross-dressing D-Day was March of 2020. After 45 years of being together, he has always watched porn. The lies and sneaking around are difficult. We are in recovery, but are struggling with the cross-dressing. My partner has been sober since March of 2020. He sees a CSAT who has not really helped with the cross-dressing. He is attending SA, SPAA meetings, and he has a sponsor. I have seen changes. He said he tried on his mother's clothes when he was, oh, fudge. I think little. I think that's a okay. hard one to, I okay. mean, it could have been last week, but my guess oh, is. Oh, here it is. Oh, I found it. So, um, so he, he said, I was... uh, tried on when he was 12 years old, he felt abandoned by what? his mother. Then at age 55, while doing a lot of traveling for his job, um, the porn and cross-dressing okay. escalated. I, I got, I got, I got. Okay. 
Um, and I just say that because it doesn't really matter. The rest of it probably is not okay. germane. So, um, so the first thing that I saw when I read this is I'm a betrayed partner of a sex and porn addict and cross-dressing. And um, while not knowing about the cross-dressing may be a betrayal, if you didn't know about it, just found out about it, or, it's not necessarily um, addiction. Um, it is what we call a fetish. So there are people who are into feet. There are people who are into being tied up. There are people who are into uh, women's panties. You know, there are many, many kinds of uh, objects that people have sexualized and they now really enjoy as a part of their sex and intimate life. Um, and even for some people wearing those clothes when it's not sexual is just part of who they are. None of us, uh, those of us who are experts in the field and in mental health would not say to you, and I'm the guy who's, you know, addictive, problematic sex. I know what that is. But none of us who really know what we're doing would say to you that the cross-dressing is uh, changeable or is a pathology, meaning it's a sickness. It's not. It's who someone is. You know, I happen to have an interest in men. I've been married with a man for 20 years. My, ori my sexual orientation is not a pathology. It's just what turns me on is, you know, men. And so it's really the same with a fetish. Um, it's not wrong or bad that I'm into something like that. It's that it, the wrong or bad part would be if I kept it a secret and I didn't let you know. And you married me before. Listen, if I did it at 12 and you married me at 22 and you didn't know, that was not fair to you for 45 years to keep the secret from you. So the porn, whatever else is going on sexually, any activities, sure. Um, and in fact, when you write, and Tammy would probably get this completely, um, he's seeing a C-setter has not helped him with the CD, with the cross-dressing. We can't help with the cross-dressing. And a healthy, good CSAT would not see that as a part of the addiction. They would see that part, in essence, of the person's orientation. And so you have multiple things to deal with. Not only have you been betrayed as a sex and porn addict partner, but you all, your husband, I guess, has had a, a turn on, I'll use that, for, for, for a long time that you are just finding out about. And how do you begin to come to terms with, A, this can be stopped, the porn, the sex addict part, but actually that the cross-dressing part is part of him and that he likes it and there's nothing wrong with it. So you have two big issues to come to terms with, and both of them are huge couples issues. So um, I, I really appreciate that you're here. I think getting educated, what is a fetish? What is a cross-dressing fetish? Um, you will find if you look at anything written in the last 10 or well, 15 or 20 years that no one would really call it a, a, uh, an illness, um, any more than you'd call homosexuality an illness or any kind of sexual arousal that's, uh, non-problematic. So Tammy, I know you hear these questions too. Well, I do. And, and actually I'm familiar with this particular one, but, um, but it, the challenge is I just can't see this as something we can compromise on and what i hear you saying is his and that's part of who he is so you know at some point he either chooses not to cross dress which is would be a choice to stay in the relationship or, i mean what are your thoughts on that i mean we we know people who are well, were sexually attracted to men who are married to a woman who choose to stay in the relationship with a woman regardless of what their attraction is so it, that's certainly true, but I also see them always on some level have a, having a simmer, simmering resentment that you may not even see. 
that I, you know, people can give up with their passions, absolutely, but there's going to be something, some kind of an emptiness left behind. Um, but uh, yes, we work with, especially older couples where they're much more invested in companionship and friendship than they are in how hot the sex is. But yeah, you can make any choices you want. Now it may be, and there are two different kinds of fetishes. There are dedicated fetishes, which means he doesn't enjoy sex unless women's clothes are a part of it. And then there are non-dedicated fetishes, which means he enjoys the sex, but he also enjoys it maybe even more with the objects involved in this case, clothes. Um, I don't know, you know, if he enjoys sexuality without it or only with it. I think that's something that is worth discussing. Um, but if you say I can never live with this and I'll never accept this, then you're saying despite your anger and hurt that I have learned this thing about my spouse, I didn't know. And this is the thing I will, and, the, and I will hang up the hat on the relationship on. And I'm not sure that something about who they are is necessarily something you're going to want to hang up the relationship around. And this isn't like he chose this lifestyle or he can help it. This is who he is. It's part of what he is. And he can't really change that. As Sammy said, he cannot do it but he can't change the fact that it turns him on or that sometimes he might really want to and all that. Can you share the story about the, the boy, the feet fetish and the piano with the mop? Can you, sure. cause I think that may be helpful too. So fetishes is interestingly develop around 11 or 12 around right around the earliest part of puberty, 10, 11, 12, depending on the kid. And they happen when a child has sexual, they're beginning to have their arousal and their sexual, and they're just beginning to feel what we would call adult sexuality and something arouses them that, it, and they get aroused. It's also tied to an experience or, or uh, an object. So these have fetish, you're not born with a fetish. Fetishes do evolve somewhere around late teens. I mean, early teens, pre-puberty. And so I had a guy who had a fetish that we were able to actually figure out where it came from, which isn't always the case. But this is what Tommy wants me to tell you guys. So I had a client who had a foot fetish. He liked women's feet. He liked kissing them, holding them, caressing them. He was turned on by women and enjoyed them without it, but he really liked their feet. And what we discovered is that he had a very depressed mom who just wasn't very active, wasn't very happy, didn't make meals for him. He got up in the morning, mom would be in bed. I mean, she just wasn't that functional, but she was a musician. And when she was functional, she would sit at home and play the piano. And when he saw his mom doing better, he would curl up around her feet. But the vibration of the piano also aroused him. So he got aroused. There were feet. He felt comforted by the presence of his mother. And somehow this glued together in his head as feet are arousing. Um, that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just part of who he is. And that evolves out of experience. So I think, isn't there something I'm not looking at the question anymore about being 12 or yes, he said he, he was, was 12. 12. He felt abandoned by his mother then at age 55, yeah. doing a lot of traveling to yeah, So, So I don't, uh, just to say it, I don't know about the abandoned by his mother part. I think there may be lots of reasons why people do this, but I can imagine he found, and it could be, he found his mother's clothes comforting. It reminded him of her. It smelled like her. And maybe he got aroused in some way. And so the clothes and the smell and the comfort and the sexuality somehow went together for him. Um, that's what it's about. But go away, it's not going away, for sure. Um, Tammy, I think it's dinner time for us. No, no, no. We 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 were we're gonna do one more. So my essay. Oh, okay. So my essay would rather 
may not bring up his addiction and ask how he's doing in recovery. How can I, how can I support him if he doesn't share his accomplishments and his struggles or triggers? I feel like he would rather pretend he doesn't have any addiction. So I, I think that, what do I want to say about this? Um, first, I, again, I don't know how long it's been since they've been dealing with this and how long uh, either one of them have known about it. But Tammy, I, I don't know. I, I really want to ask you, because this is a little complicated for my brain. Um, what do you think? So the Thanos that was mentioned earlier, that's a set check-in. And that's so it's feelings, affirmation, needs, ownership, and struggles. And so there's a set little, not pattern, so to speak, but it's it's a guideline, so to speak, of how to check in. You know, Dr. Rob has talked before about like you know the schedule of my recovery meetings, unless you have small children or or children that can read, you know, is on the fridge. So so that there's some accountability. I you know I can imagine um, that if it feels like you always have to ask, then it's kind of like the kid, like what are you doing for your recovery today? So it may feel parentalized, um, but is there a can you set it up so that it's like you know on Tuesdays at seven p.m. for twenty minutes we're going to have a discussion and we're going to check in. Can there be a different strategy for how you check in? But remember, you know you. Um, like his struggle with triggers, like so, careful with that. That isn't always something that partners and spouses, you know, it's, I mean, it depends. Like you, do you want to know what is his trigger for his thoughts? No. You know, what is he doing? Is he working with his sponsor? Is he attending these meetings? What is he doing for his recovery? That's fair for him to share with you to help you feel safe. But, but you being the police of his actions and thoughts, that isn't good for you and is not good for his recovery or your relationship. That's, that was my thoughts. But if he's not sharing anything that that would turn you into a detective because you feel like, yeah. wait, what's really going on. And, you know, like I've said before, I think it's great for recovering people to put their schedule of recovery on the refrigerator and their spouse can see this is what you're doing Monday. This is the meeting Tuesday. This is the therapy session Wednesday, that kind of thing, like what we're doing and, and where we're going and how we're in, you know, but the details, I have an obligation to you. I, if I have a slip, if I do one of those sobriety breaking things, I'm going to come tell you, but if I, but I'm not going to tell you about the minor things. That's, you know, I looked at this person, I drove through the wrong part of town. That, that's really for my sponsor and the people in my program. However, this, uh, and I typed in the chat, the link to Thanos, it's, it's on some treatment center recovery site in Texas, but it, nonetheless, it's on there. And uh, uh, so I got that for you guys, but um, it's, you shouldn't have to ask about this. He should volunteer on a regular basis. Let me tell you what's going on in my recovery. Tammy and I always recommend take 20 minutes every night or take 20 minutes three times a week or whatever it is, put it on your schedule and talk about nothing but this. How's recovery going? How are you doing with your feelings of betrayal? How are we doing? There's never anything wrong with more communication. So if he, and I can understand this, doesn't just volunteer it, say, you know, I would feel better if we set up a time and we just were, and then when you met at that time, this is what you would both talk about. He could be ashamed. He could be hiding things. I mean, it could be anywhere across the map. He could think if I talk about this more, it's going to upset her more and I want her to calm down. So I'm not going to talk about it. I think maybe you should start with talking about why you don't talk about it. <laughs> and that might be a good place to begin. 
one of the, and we use this often in some of the other webinars, Krista Snowden uses this often. I've used it quite a bit. The story I'm telling myself. So the story I'm telling myself when you don't share with me, when you do, don't do a check-in is that you are hiding something from me that you don't value our relationship. There's something, but if you say it in a, the story I'm telling myself, then that person can validate well, yeah, I am afraid to tell you, you know, I'm, I'm afraid you're going to police or, um, oh, no, I, that's, you know, that's not how this is, but we have an opportunity in a non-threatening way to discuss, you know, this is my version. This is what I'm telling myself. What's, what's the reality of the situation? So. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.